0: If you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go on and turn over to chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. We're, we've been in this book now since January. It's going to carry us through to the end of the year. If you're visiting with us this morning, that's, that's why we're here this morning. There is absolutely no chance that I would have chosen to talk to you about Melchizedek today if it wasn't the next in line in, this, in our study through this letter. One thing you might remember, for those of you who have been with us for a while is that probably back in March, I guess, right before Easter, we came to this part of Hebrews that introduces the idea of Jesus serving as a priest, and it mentions this guy Melchizedek. It talks about Jesus serving in his order. What you may not remember, what I want to remind you of now, is that immediately after our author goes there, here's what he says in chapter 5. This is verse 11. About this, the this being Jesus priesthood and Melchizedek and his connection to this Old Testament figure. About this, he says, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing, right? And then he spends the next two chapters getting on them, because they didn't have the the taste for solid things. They were just stuck drinking milk, because they they had, they, were, they were sluggish and dull and apathetic, and so they didn't have any ability to process. Their, their spiritual bodies, if you will, could not process the solid things that he wanted to tell them. Well, chapter 7 is where he finally gets back to those solid things. After setting them aside to get on to these people for a bit and try to, try to challenge them and then encourage them, now he's come back to it. What he's come back to, and what we're going to look, start looking at today, is what we might call the meat of Hebrews, the thing he most wanted to communicate to people. And it was all about Jesus being a priest for us and especially a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I think the reason it's so difficult, the reason he had to break off and challenge his his readers before he could get to it, is that it takes a lot of work to get our minds around this stuff before we can get to using this stuff. It takes a lot of work to get our minds around it, to sort of come to grips with it before we can ever start seeing the payoff of it. You know, some things are immediately relevant. You know, you read, you read like Romans chapter 8, and the promise that that God's love will never be separated from us, that his son is proof of that, that there's not height or depth or any other created thing or whatever that can separate us from him, and immediately you're like, Yes, I want that. It's like a, a wave that washes over you almost. But then there are sections of scripture that just don't read that way. When you read them, it doesn't immediately have any payoff. And I think that our author knew that that was, that was the case, and he knew that that was the case, especially with this Melchizedek stuff. And so he knew he couldn't, he couldn't just go there without challenging them to sort of buck up and get ready, because you've got to do some work before there's going to be an obvious payoff. I think of it, I mean, I think just about any skill that we're looking for, anything that we, that we use is kind of like this. Um, I remember several years back, I started to get more interested in photography just because I thought it was interesting the way the equipment worked and what the different specs meant. and how It was kind of fun to try out, especially when we had a child and and got to start practicing some things. But I remember that, that really the first, I don't know how many hours, 10, 20, 30 hours maybe, was spent just reading about the camera. Just reading about words like aperture and what that means, what the different numbers that go with aperture mean and how adjusting those things, adjust the nature of the picture. There's a lot of study that initially is just like flying over my head because I can't connect it to actually using a camera. But if you don't go through the hours and hours of work to try to figure out what these specs mean, then you never get to have the fun of putting the camera to use in a a meaningful way. I think you'd probably take just about any skill out there and, and draw a similar analogy. I think what the author is doing now today where we get is is teaching us about the camera, so to speak. Things about aperture and the numbers and shutter speed and, and all of this. Because he wants us to be able to put these skills to use down the road. The problem is that he, we're going to have to trust him that he's going to get down the road, get to where it actually is encouraging, and we're going to have to work hard to follow him to that end. That's, that's what's called for here. What we're getting to today in the first 10 verses of chapter 7 Jesus is really not mentioned at all. There's one sort of veiled reference to him. It's almost all prep work for where we're going to get a couple chapters later. And we're going to hold on and do the hard work, eat the meat that's been set before us, because we're trusting that if we do, we'll be more encouraged later. That This work is what gets us to the encouragement of Jesus' priesthood down the road. That's That's the challenge I'm giving to you, hoping that you'll stay awake for the next half an hour while we talk about Melchizedek together. Without further ado, if you found the passage, Hebrews chapter 7, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, Gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think the place we have to start this morning, as we introduce ourselves to the subject that he is introducing in these first 10 verses is to talk about the nature of the priesthood first. And I said this back in March when we first came to that passage in chapter 5 that mentions the priesthood in Melchizedek. My sense is that we just don't get why priests are necessary. They're not part of our, our experience in the way that they were in these ancient days. In these days, everybody thought you needed a priest. They all had their own systems. There's lots of different kinds of gods out there, but everybody had a priest. They assumed that they needed one. I don't think that we assume that. I don't think we see it. I think our needs are clear to us at one level. We all wake up feeling like we need something. You know, I need a glass of orange juice or a cup of coffee. I don't think any of us have ever woken up in the morning saying, I I need a priest. And preferably, I'd like to have one in the order of Melchizedek, if possible. That's not a felt need, is it? At least not on the surface. But, I think if we look a little bit deeper, we, we do all feel our need of a priest we haven't put it in that terms, but all of us feel it here's what I think here's what I mean the reason we need a priest in the terms of the Bible is that there's a relationship at the core of our lives, a relationship that is the reason we were made, and that relationship is broken. A priest is an intermediary, a go-between between two parties in a relationship that isn't what it needs to be, a relationship that has a gap that exists in the middle of it. And that's why we need this figure to go back and forth in that gap. This breach in the relationship that we were made for is at the heart of the Bible story, and understanding that breach is the key to connecting, I think, with the idea of a priesthood. Now, like I said, I think all of us have noticed that we need a priest, even if we haven't put it in those words. Have you ever known what, I'm sure I'm sure all of us would answer yes to this. You know what it's like to have a relationship in your life that touches everything about you, right? There's no part of your life that isn't affected by this relationship. And you know what it feels like when that relationship is struggling, how your whole life can seem off-kilter. This can be a close friend. It could be someone in your family. It could be your spouse. That when you've had a fight, maybe, or you just aren't seeing eye-to-eye, eye, there's just something a little bit askew. There's, there's a feeling in your stomach that that has, right? That, that's, it's, it's like a weight that you carry around in the pit of your stomach. You guys all know what I'm talking about. The story of the Bible suggests that the only reason we experience things like sorrow and restlessness and fear and depression, the reason that we lash out at other people in anger, the reason that we're unsatisfied and feel shamed, all of these things, all of the emotional, psychological baggage that we carry around can ultimately be traced back to this broken relationship that we were made for, that's now off-kilter, and we're carrying that weight. We we carry a sense, in other words, that we're not what we were supposed to be. The Bible teaches that God made us for himself, that he made us to have fellowship with him, to enjoy him. He made us so that he could prove his glory in us. He could prove how all-satisfying he is, how... Perfect is what he supplies to us by, in this relationship, giving us everything that we need and having us respond to him with this sense of completion and satisfaction. That's what we were made for, a relationship that shows how all-satisfying God is. That's the point of our existence. and He made us to crave that relationship. He made us to hunger for it like we hunger for food or for sex or for companionship. Now, let me ask you this. Does that sound like your relationship with God? Where you hunger for Him? You just, it's a, almost a physical ache for Him? Is He real and present for you? Do you love the thought of Him and get encouraged and uplifted by Him and by the things that He tells you about Himself and His Word? Or would you say that God is abstract for you? That the things that you read in the Bible don't immediately connect? Like you just don't really see the point? Is he bland, maybe? He's just not as interesting as the things you can get elsewhere on TV or in other human relationships. Does he seem distant for you? If you've said yes to any of these latter questions, then you've answered the question of why you need a priest. If you don't hunger for God like that, we'll be honest, none of us do. If you are not always encouraged thought of him, if you ever think of him as distant or hard to connect with, or you just just don't feel right in that relationship, that is why you need a priest. And the final layer to it is that ultimately the reason the relationship isn't what it ought to be is that we've broken it. We have tried on other things in place of the satisfaction God promises us in himself we've turned to lots of other options to try to fill that 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 place in our life that he is meant to fill and in doing that what we're saying about him is that he can't fill it we're making a statement that's that is that is shaming his character Not just that we feel broken and struggle to find meaning in life. It's that we have made a statement about God that's false, and he has got to set that right. So we need a priest because our lives are off kilter. We also need a priest because we deserve to be judged for what we've done. That's the story of the Bible. That's the purpose of the priesthood. What if God reconciled with us? What if he took it on himself to heal the breach in the relationship that is at the heart of all the problems we experience? What if... What if he made a way to fix it? The priesthood is God's solution. That's the purpose. Now, here's where we get to Hebrews chapter 7. All through the Old Testament, the priesthood that God put into place to try to heal this gap, to bridge it, to make the relationship what it was supposed to be, was associated with this tribe in Israel called the Levites. They were descendants of one of the children of Jacob, and they were set aside by God to serve as priests for the whole nation. In our text today, the author to Hebrews is making one simple step in an argument that tries to get them ready for Jesus. It's a simple step. All he's trying to do is say this. That priesthood that you grew up with, the one that you took sacrifices to and depended on for the pleasure of God, that priesthood was never meant to be final. It was always meant only to point ahead to something else. And the fact that this story about Melchizedek is in your Bible is what points us to the limited nature of that old priesthood. That's all he's trying to say. Here's how he does it. Melchizedek, think think of Melchizedek as a kind of clue embedded in this old story that something more was on the horizon, something bigger and better was coming. Clearly, getting into the details, let me just say this one more time. I don't want you to to miss this. We get that if you're sitting down to write a letter today, 21st century America, and what you're trying to convince people of is that they needed Jesus, you would not start by pointing them to Melchizedek, right? Let's just be honest about that. That's, this is not where you would go. But what's, I think, our responsibility is to try to enter into the world of this time and to try to see it for what it is, to try to see why this would have been encouraging for the people to whom it was written. And if we, can, if we can get ourselves into their world, if we can bridge the gap between their world and ours, then we're ready for the end of this chapter and the chapter to come where we can see Jesus for who he really is. So, so I'm asking you to focus in hard. We're going to dive into Melchizedek and try to see it for for its own terms as a way of preparing ourselves to put it to use later on in this chapter and the one to come. Okay, so Melchizedek. The author is basically just talking about a story that's in Genesis. In the first three verses of chapter 7, what he's doing is is hitting the high points of that story that's back in Genesis 14. And then in the next verses, verses 4 through 10, he's sort of commenting on it, talking about the significance of that story, trying to Do what I'm doing now with what he wrote, trying to interpret it for his his people. He was a preacher, basically, who had a sermon text and is trying to build on it. So he starts with the basics of the story, verses 1 to 3. It's a story that is pretty short, that comes up once in Genesis and never gets mentioned again until Hebrews. It's a story of Abraham coming back from battle, where he'd gone to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken away, been taken captive in some war with the city that he lived in, a city called Sodom. And Abraham went and was blessed by God, and he completely destroyed the armies that had taken away his nephew. And he's coming back from this huge victory. And out of nowhere, this guy Melchizedek meets him, offers him food. And Abraham knows instinctively that this is a holy person, that, that somehow he represents God and God's interests and Abraham gives to him a tenth of everything that he took when he defeated these other kings. He pays a tithe, in other words, to Melchizedek, a, a symptom, a symbol that this guy represents God, and God is the one who gave me all of this. He gave me this victory, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it back to him as a way of showing my dependence on God. That's what he does. And in response, Melchizedek offers him a blessing. That's the end of the story, period. He drops in like a, parish trooper, like a paratrooper out of nowhere— He's there for a minute and then gone and never comes up again in Genesis or anywhere else until thousands of years later. This author starts to comment on the story. Here's what he does with the story in verses 1 to 10. What he's trying to say is that those people that he's writing to who are tempted to see the priesthood that they'd always known as enough for them have not read their Bibles carefully enough. That's his basic point. That if they had read the story of Genesis more carefully... They would have seen that even then, the priesthood that they were now living with was not meant to be final. What they would have seen are two things about this story. There's two things about the story that he finds to be really significant. The first is this there was one who was greater than Abraham. And the implication is that if he was greater than Abraham, he was also greater than Abraham's children. That means he was a greater priest. Than the priests who came from Abraham. That's his simple argument. He goes to the fact that Abraham paid him tithes. He's like, who? Obviously, if he's paying him tithes, then he must be higher than him. Abraham recognizes him as someone that that he owes this to because this guy represents God in a special way. And then Melchizedek blesses him. And what does he say in verse? in in verse 7 it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior clearly melchizedek is higher than abraham and he even makes that weird argument in at the end of the of the chapter or at the end of the of our section this morning verses 9 and 10 he says you know levi was basically in the loins of his father when he met melchizedek so when when he paid tithe when abraham paid tithes levi also paid tithes not the kind of argument you would use today, right? Obviously, we don't, we, don't, we don't see things in quite that same way, but you can see where he's going. The point is simple enough, even if the method that he uses is a little bit strange to us. The point is, even, if, even by your own stories, you should see that this priesthood you're staking everything to was not meant to be final. There was somebody else who was higher and outside of it that, that ultimately it only points to. That's the significance of this tithe and this blessing. Now, this the second thing that he wants to draw out of the story is even more important. I think it's this second thing that helps us see why Melchizedek is greater than the priests who came from Abraham, and why ultimately, when we get to Jesus, Jesus is superior to the priests that came from Abraham. It's this. His status before God as somebody who helps humans relate to God is not bound by time were broken by death. Melchizedek's status as someone who helps humans to connect with God is not broken by death. That's a point that he makes first of all in verse three, and then comes back to in verse eight. I want to park on verse three for a second though to make sure we get this. What we need I think the way we need to read this verse is over against everything about the Levitical priesthood, the Levites as priests. And one thing we're one thing that, that, that comes through really clear in the Old Testament is that these Levites had serious restrictions on how they could serve. For example, they were only able to serve for a certain number of years. They could start serving at 30 and they could serve till they were fifty, and then they were done. Forced retirement at 50. There was this constant turnover in the priests. And those, ro- those rules were not arbitrary. It wasn't just like they thought, well, after 50, you know, they won't really have it anymore. So we need to go ahead and get them out of the service. The, the idea, the whole system was set up to show that, that there was turnover, that it wasn't perfect, it wasn't complete, it was transitional almost. But here, Melchizedek drops in out of nowhere. And there's no mention of his father and his mother. There's no genealogy. If you wanted to serve as a Levite, as a priest in those days, you had to be able to prove on written record that you came from someone who was a Levite. And if there was any question about whether or not you fit, that was your family tie, you wouldn't get a shot at it. You were written off. You had to prove your genealogy. But here's Melchizedek. No mention is made at all of his mother or his father. It doesn't matter who he, where he comes from, because this guy's priesthood stands outside of time. It's not bound in the same way that the others were. That's the whole point. I think we've got to be careful here not to think that verse 3 is suggesting he was divine. A lot of people have, have said that about Melchizedek. That What do you mean, he doesn't have a mother or a father? He lives forever? Is, is, literally? Is he God or something? Some people have thought that. I think what he's really trying to say is that he just doesn't mention his father and mother. His father and mother are irrelevant. And that means his priesthood isn't tied to things that change. It isn't tied to the cycles of birth and death. It stands outside of all that. Here's an analogy I heard that's helpful, I think. Um, One one, one guy put it like this, that the, the timelessness of this guy, Melchizedek, is not literal it's not literally that he lives forever, but it's experiential. It's something that we experience. From the experience of these people, he may as well have lived forever. Here's the analogy. You know how you sometimes say, or you know how we sometimes think that of somebody that we knew at one time in their lives and we haven't seen them in like 10 or 20 years. They basically have the same identity for us that they had at that time, right? I think maybe if you graduated high school 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, People you haven't seen since then still have the same sort of faces and interests and they look the same, they are the same as as when you last saw them because they're frozen there, right? From your experience, they may as well be timeless. Now, obviously, it's not true any more than it's true of Melchizedek. But from their experience, it's true. I think that's what what we're supposed to see here. The significance that he's trying to pull out here is that this makes him like the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God, continuing as a priest forever. His priesthood wasn't limited like the one that's to come. Unpacking this point, which I know is obscure, is going to take us through the rest of the chapter, and and I'm going to point ahead to it as we close. I don't want us to close without at least getting a taste of the encouragement that's going to come from trying to understand these details well. But before I do that, I want to make sure I want to make sure we're connecting with one really important thing here. It has to do with how this guy is reading the Bible. I think one of the main takeaways for us from these first 10 verses is that the author here is showing us how we should be reading our Old Testament. That we should read it looking for clues about one who is to come later. Ultimately, that's what he's doing is he's accusing his readers when they're drifting back to the Levites and wanting to go to that old priesthood, the old way. What he's telling them is that you have not read your Bible carefully enough. You didn't recognize that there was this whole thing in a story about Abraham about somebody that's greater than Abraham. And how can you understand that? What what, what sense does that make unless there was one who's coming later who is the whole point of Abraham and everything he represented? I think the author's doing the same thing Jesus did after he was raised from the dead. One of my favorite stories about Jesus after his resurrection. Is that story of him going on the road with his disciples and, and they don't recognize him yet? you know, And they're, at, they're telling him about, about this Jesus who was killed and how they had hoped that he would be the Messiah. But now that he's dead, we know he can't be the Messiah. And Jesus corrects them. And how does he correct them? By opening up the scriptures to them. By pointing them to the law and the prophets and showing them how those things ultimately point ahead to him. How they explain why the Messiah must die and be raised again. Jesus was reading the Old Testament as a book that was about him. And the author of Hebrews is doing exactly the same thing. Think about how remarkable it is that God, as the author of the entire collection of Scripture includes references for no other reason than to point ahead to what would come. Melchizedek shows up for a few verses one time in all the stories of the Bible. And the reason he shows up there, according to this chapter, is that he resembles the Son of God. You get that? He points ahead to, he resembles, he's a clue towards what's to come. That's the whole point that he's in there for. I was talking to Josh Shive earlier this week about some obscure tolkien reference that he had found and he was really happy about it he had found some reference in that that crosses different tolkien story worlds and it was the same wor- word or the same city it had a the, the word for the city had the, a lot of meaning to it and he had found that it wasn't just in the lord of the rings it was also in this other series that was making a similar point and using these words and he was. He was taken up with the genius, I think rightly so, of Tolkien who could piece all these separate things together and point, have clues in them pointing to the same things. And we're supposed to read the, the Bible that way. I think the Old Testament becomes so much more encouraging to us if we see it not as a thing that's, that's bound to the time that it was written, but as a thing written by the same God who would send his son for us and as, as, clue, as clue, including lots of signposts pointing us ahead to what's to come. Pretty much any time you find a tension in the Old Testament, any time you find a clue like this one that that, the, that Abraham himself, the one who had the promises, is not is is inferior to this other one who was to come. What we're supposed to do is read it as a sign that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything we're meant to hope for. I don't know of any book that does this better than the Jesus Storybook Bible. You want know, some hardcore? Biblical Theology, go read the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love the introduction to that book. I love it. Here's what it says. The Bible is most of all a story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Here's what I really like. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Melchizedek, obscure though he is, our author is showing us it's just one clue, pointing ahead with everything else written in the Old Testament to one who would come to provide what these older systems could not a perfect and complete salvation. Read your Bible that way, it'll be good for your soul. Now, here's where I want to finish. Like I mentioned before, Jesus doesn't really come up in these first ten verses. This is all about groundwork. It's about doing detailed, hardcore, biblical exegesis of an old story that they hadn't read carefully enough. And we've been trying to track with him and pull out what it was that mattered to him. But I don't want to leave us there without at least pointing ahead to where we're going in the next few weeks. I promise there's a good point to this Melchizedek story. The point is this. Jesus is the perfect high priest. If the old system was set up to show imperfection, incompletion, if that's why these priests were on a revolving door based on how old they were and whether or not they lived or died, if that was all about showing that there was something not yet here that was to come that was going to fix this broken relationship, then Jesus is the one it was meant to point to. What was different about Melchizedek was that his priesthood wasn't bound to time, to term limits by death. What's true of Jesus' priesthood is that it's held by Jesus forever. Let me point you to the one verse that I think explains the whole chapter that we're looking at. It's verse 25 of, of chapter 7. It says this, Consequently, In other words, on the basis of everything I've just said, all these details about Melchizedek and him having no father and mother, no genealogy, all these things about Abraham paying tithes to him and being blessed by him, consequently, because of all of that, therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The point of all of this is that Jesus lives forever and that he lives to intercede for us. We're going to unpack that a lot in the weeks to come. Here are the two things I think matter most. This intercession that is the point of all of this chapter, I think it's got a couple dimensions to it. One, Jesus intercedes for us by his own body given up on the cross. Intercede is is a word that we think of not just in terms of prayer. We'll talk on some about that, but also like stepping in between to take a blow, to heal a breach, to thwart off, in this case, the wrath of God. He intercedes and takes what was meant for us. So Jesus living forever is a picture of Jesus standing before God forever offering his sacrifice to God forever. A sacrifice that's so perfect, that is so once for all, that there is nothing that needs to be added to it by us or by anyone else. It is done, finished, and he intercedes forever with his own blood. And there's one more aspect, I think. Jesus, not bound by time, is a priest forever who lives to intercede for us. And by that he means... He is an advocate for us with God to get for us what we need from the one who holds our lives in his hand. An advocate who knows us fully, who knows what it's like to be us because he became one of us, who knows us fully because he lives forever and we have a history with him. This one who knows us perfectly will never stop praying for us before the throne of God. Do you get how beautiful that is? Think about this analogy. Haven't we all had the experience of working with customer service on something? Let's just pick on like, your cable company because they're, they're the all-time worst, right? That is totally the worst. Maybe your cell phone company, I don't know. Don't you know what it's like that, that you, sort of your, your fate in this negotiation depends on the person you've got on the other end of the line? them knowing your problems, being sort of for you and representing you and your interests to the company that you're dealing with. They are, in a sense, a priest or an intercessor for you. Don't you know what it's like to have wasted sometimes an hour, two hours on the phone with these people, trying to give them a full sense of everything that's gone wrong and why they owe you something that they're not giving you, and, and you feel like you've finally gotten somewhere with them, but then you get cut off. You ever had that happen? Your phone goes out or they hang up on you or something. you got to do something else and you can't keep it going. And isn't the most frustrating thing about that situation that when you call back again, you get somebody totally different. They don't know you. They don't know what you've been through. They, they aren't for you. You'd spend all that time trying to win this person over, to, to really want to give you the free month as a compensation for all the pain and suffering you had been through. And now you got somebody new and you're starting all over again. I think that's a similar dynamic to what was going on with Levitical priesthood. These people who were interceding between humans and the God whose relationship was life to them and that was broken, Well, there, was a, there, was a, there were severe limitations on how effectively they could intercede because they had problems of their own, for one thing, but also because they just kept changing. Best case scenario, they live out their 20-year term and then they're done. But Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that means that he's a priest forever. And that means that he can save us completely because he lives forever. And he lives forever to intercede for us, knowing us like no one else could, knowing his Father like no one else could, and standing between us with an unbroken chain of advocacy on our behalf to get us exactly what we need for life and godliness. What an image. Melchizedek matters because he, his, is the order of priesthood that will never end his is his priesthood fulfilled ultimately in Jesus is the reason we are saved completely that's what the road ahead holds for us let's pray that god would help us get there father please help us our minds just aren't up to the task our attention spans are weak and they they drift especially when we have a hard time connecting details to anything that really matters and changes life on the ground for us. And we've had one of those texts today. We ask that you would help us to understand it and to love it for what it is, because it gets us to Jesus. Help us to persevere through the weeks to come. As we uncover more details, help us to trust that your word gets us to where we need to be because of these details. Help us through them to love Jesus more, to trust him more. We pray.